It's the TEH podcast, episode number 96. I'm Leo Notenboom at AskLeo.com World Headquarters. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig at MacMost.com World Headquarters. What I like about using the phrase World Headquarters is that my World Headquarters tends to move. Like it's, it's wherever I happen, wherever I and my laptop happen to be is Ask Leo World Headquarters. It's kind of fun. It's, uh, I've been headquartered on the beach. I've been headquartered in other countries. It's great. Yeah, I, we used to say the, uh, when I had, you know, people working for me, we used to always say we're coming to you from the Clever Media Tower. Um, <laughs> I've seen story that building. building. Yeah. yeah, two-story building. We were you in were the in basement, the basement actually. Yes. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's like, hey, we want to call it a tower, call it a tower. Technically, so. it's a very, very, very short tower, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what you got, Derry? What's going on? Well, let's see. I mean, I thought a timely thing to talk about would be this, uh, you know, Apple's contact tracing thing. Actually, it's not Apple. Apple and Google's uh, contact tracing thing um, is getting a lot of attention because it actually launches on Friday. Um, and it's a really interesting uh, thing that's come about. Basically, it's Apple and Google working together in an unprecedented matter, uh, manner, <laughs> and it uh, to, to help with the whole pandemic thing, particularly for the United States, because other countries have been doing contact tracing uh, with help from their kind of uh, uh, different government governmental uh, authorities, you know, uh, for a country like China, it's pretty easy to just say, uh, we're going to do contact tracing, everybody do this, and you have to obey. But in a place like the United States, uh, and a lot of other world democracies, it's a little hard to go and mandate uh, tracing. And of course, the government doesn't really have control over the technology, it's private companies that do. Most notably, Google and Apple, uh, once you take those two companies into account, you pretty much have control over close to 100% of the phones, considering that, uh, you know, I guess there's a few, few people maybe using an older Windows phone, or have they completely... Uh, um, I, I'm sure down. that there are some diehards, but they've got to be very, yeah, very Yeah, and they're like number. BlackBerry. I mean, I mean, there's still other devices, but largely Android and Apple are, you know, you cover almost everybody. Right. So you pro there's probably more people who are just aren't using smartphones than people that are using smartphones not made by... Google and Apple. So the idea is if those two com companies can agree on some technology, you could do what other uh, governments have done that have more of a lockdown on their, their citizen citizenry. Um, so that's exactly what happened is uh, some people uh, got together at both companies and some outside people also gave some input uh, and they came up with a plan. And the plan is not to have an app. It's not like Apple and Google are going to come out with some sort of contact tracing app. They're coming out with an API and developers can make apps. So, you know, I could as a private developer come out with a contact tracing app. More likely, some governments, like maybe the government of Germany, will come out with one. Maybe the government of the United States, or perhaps maybe it'll be just, uh, you know, larger app developers come out with several here in the United States. And they'll all use the same system. And having an API makes it easy to build because you don't have to go and build from the ground up. Okay, how do we trace, you know, pe people's contacts? You know, when people come close to each other, you could just hook into a couple commands that takes care of it all. And if there are two apps, if I'm using an app and you're using an app made by different companies, they're using the same system. So 
if I were to check off, oh, I was just diagnosed with COVID-19 and I was had happened to have been near you, Leo, three days ago, you could be using a completely different app and you would still get a notification about that event that uh, you know, a friend of yours that you were close to three days ago came down with COVID-19. And the way they're doing it is by um, keeping everybody's privacy, which is also very different than how other you know, governments are doing it. Because you know, basically, the simple way to do this is build a list. You know, okay, I'm using the app. Where have I been? Uh, you know, build a database of every place I've been, build a database of every place everybody else has been. And if I report that I now am sick, uh, it just goes through that database and matches everybody up. But that's not something people like because that means somewhere some government has basically a list of every place you've been. Right. Uh, you know. So the way this system works is it's going to use Bluetooth and uh, Bluetooth on the phones. And typically to use Bluetooth for something like this, an app developer wouldn't be able to do it. Like an app, I can't build an app that basically says send out Bluetooth signals all the time. The phone is on. I could only do it when somebody's using my app. So that's why Google and Apple had to kind of come in and say, well, we'll enable this for this one thing at the system level. So I, I starting, I'm not sure if it's everybody starting on May 1st or it's just people that have installed a certain app uh, like, or any app that uses this, um, start sending out pings from my iPhone. And the pings are anonymous. My iPhone just comes up with, like, think of a, a really long number. It just comes up with a really long number, and it sends that out. And then other phones in the area receive that ping, has, have no idea who that's coming from. And they just record this really long number. Ah, this phone was near me. And everybody on their phones has this little kind of, uh, you know, database of fo- phones that have been close to them or these random numbers that have been close to them, but you don't know who they are. Now, when somebody reports that they've been sick, this then goes to some central location saying that this ID has been reported as sick. And then all of our phones will get kind of a notification of that and look through our own little personal databases on our phones and see if that matches anybody we've been close to. And if it does, it just gives you basically a, oh, you know, when you were over at, you know, picking up lunch at this place uh, three days ago, you came in contact with somebody that now reports they had have COVID-19. And you don't know who that person is. They don't know who you are, but the system works for basically contact tracing, or they're actually calling it somewhere else, what, uh, some, something else. But, but the... I mean, at at some point, at some level, I should say, uh, the system knows you, associates your random number with your phone. So the system knows who you are. That may not be shared with other users, but um, be it Google Google or Apple, well, how did they know to send you the notification that you've been in contact with this other infected person? Well, okay, so say my phone uh, comes up with a random number 349, right? right. Obviously much longer, right? I have to right. do something unique. And it sends out 349 when I'm near you. Right. Okay, that number um, is now on your phone in a list. Oh, I was near, near number 349 this time, this location, okay? Right. And later on, 
three days later, my phone uh, sends out to some some central database or whatever mm-hmm. that I was I'm infected, and then it just puts that number three forty nine there. Right, but it knows where it came from. Why? The central, the central why database. Ask, why would it know who it came from? I mean, if I, my phone's not sharing that information. It's just saying 349's reporting in as sick. Right, reporting in where? Oh, the, you mean the location. So it could, so the central. No, so no, I guess, no, 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 the database. You said there's a central database. Yeah, right. but it, it doesn't know. I'm not reporting who I am. I'm just but, saying, but, by the way, 349 is sick. But it knows where the report came from. Right. For, for, only if I've sent it. I mean, why can't that be anonymous? If the system is designed properly, of course it could be anonymous. But yes. that's a, that's a a very deep technical detail. I mean, it's kind of like when you visit my my website, I see your IP address. Well, but that's the that's the point of having Google and Apple developing the API. Is so Google and Apple? There's two points there. To to you know, Google and Apple. They you know the uh, in the Android system and the iOS system. Right. And they go and they say, here's here's our code. We are not going to report who you are. Trust We're us. just going to take that. Trust us. Now you don't have to trust these developers or these nations or whoever's doing it because they don't know. They have to ask our piece of code. Our piece of code is not going not gonna to do that, which is kind of, it's kind of the idea is saying, okay, uh, you know, I mean, because I mean, let's face it, Google, if Google and Apple wanted to know all sorts of things about us, they could. They have to build that in and they're always under scrutiny. You know, there's always people analyzing different things and trying sure. to figure out. And, you know, so more or less, it's easy to get caught when you're one of two companies that basically, you know, is doing this. Um, so, yeah, the idea is that you have to trust Google and Apple, but we already are because they're in our pockets. Uh, and and uh, it's now- interesting because this is a level of, of, I would argue that this is for many people a higher level of trust. Um, it's one thing uh, to share with Google your location, let's say, yeah. um, or the contents of your email or whatever, right? But it's something else when you use an app to report that you have an right. illness, a, a specific illness that has, the illness itself is so significant and has such a high societal impact that they've built this infrastructure for reporting it. So yeah, but the information is already available in other forms. For instance, you had a test. True. That test is in a database somewhere. That's probably true. multiple databases at a hospital or urgent care yep. at your doctor. I and, mean, to be, and to be honest, those are the ones that I'd be more concerned about getting and, hacked well, yeah, and that, leaked and so forth. <laughs> and you probably posted to Facebook, oh, I've got it. You probably text messaged, you know, a couple of, couple of people in your yeah, family over point. SMS sy- systems and all this. So, yeah. and, and another thing I want to point out is that that number, you know, I was coming up with the idea of a, you know, a number like 349. Right. Well, that's not necessarily your number. One minute my phone could be sending 349. The next minute it's sending 471. You know, whatever it's sending out, these are numbers that are associated with my phone. They're really long numbers, so they're unique. But I could send out, I don't know how often they change or if every single ping is a different number. Right. But there isn't like a single number that goes out from your phone. I believe it's a, it's a code that goes out. And then they could. Um, if they're, and I hear I'm, this is now we're venturing off into pure speculation on my part, yeah. um, but they could use the same kind of technology that we use to generate um, uh, two-factor authentication codes. 
which is basically public key authentication, or I'm sorry, public key encryption, where um, the app on your phone, I mean, it shares a quote unquote secret with the main system, but that allows uh, it to encode and only that system to decode uh, this random number that uh, that you're sending. So yeah, there's certainly some possibilities there. So I, you know, we'll link to an article here that does go into some of the technical stuff. I mean, even though it's CNBC, it's surprisingly technical. Right. Um, and it actually, it does a really good job of explaining some of this in layman's terms. I was quite impressed uh, so, by the uh, author there. The um, But I think, yeah, the two main things are not just the privacy stuff, but also the fact that doing it at an API level Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it means that, you know, we're not all like all the iPhone users aren't being told you need to get this app from Apple and all the Google, you know, the Android users aren't being told you need to get this Android app or the, or it's a system function. Instead, it's being provided. So Germany can decide we're going to have a state sponsored app that everybody must get. But the United States can go and say, oh, you could go and, you know, maybe the CDC does an app. I don't know, you know, maybe, or maybe it's a, Maybe Apple does their own app, but Google doesn't. Instead, some well-known app developer comes out with an app or something like that. You know? Right, right. Um, it's interesting. This So um, as I was driving off to get lunch today, support your local restaurants, <laughs> I um, was listening to a couple of different podcasts. And this topic actually came up in the sense that it was mentioned in passing. And what was mentioned was that Britain's NHS, their National Health Service, is opting not to use this. They're explicitly saying, no, we're not going to use this thing that Google and Apple are developing. Um, I've linked to an article. Um, I found it actually while you were talking, so I don't have the depth. <laughs> um, I, haven't, you know, I haven't read yeah. the whole thing. But from skimming it, the implication is that the NHS wants more information than the Apple and the Google APIs would provide. And that's in a couple of a couple of variations. One, I suspect that some of the privacy stuff that you and I were just talking about that Apple and Google are providing, um, NHS doesn't necessarily want that. They want more of an right. eye into who you are. And specifically, their app, their uh, uh, alternative app is apparently going to be doing things like asking you for symptoms and collecting more data just than just sick or not sick. It's actually going to be doing some analytics or analysis of, of your condition. So they're, you know, they, they want to go a little further than apparently the API will allow them to go. So they've just said, yeah, we'll do our own. I did hear the name of the company who was actually implementing it for them. Unfortunately, I can't find that in the, um, in the uh, the article yet, uh, but I thought that that was kind of interesting. It was a well-known uh, U.S. company that was uh, going to be developing this alternative contact tracing app for the NHS. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, Britain, um, their stand, uh, their I guess their public acceptance of privacy and things like that a little different. Like I know, for instance, one of the biggest camera surveillance networks right. anywhere in the world, right, is London. You know, they've got cameras everywhere. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the the constant uh, terrorist attacks that have been happening for decades. 
Uh, yeah, not so much lately, but yeah. certainly like yeah. a couple of, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, it was a relatively common there, there were a lot. And, you know, that, I guess, uh, so, you know, things like being on, you know, camera surveillance uh, while in London uh, is uh, just something that people have gotten used to. Um, so, yeah, it's a little different. You know, the United States is very, you know, there's uh, many different extremes here of, uh, you know, needs for privacy and things like that. So. There's that. And there's also the... Um, what I'll call the the pragmatic issue that says that uh, you know all the cameras in London make a lot of sense. There's a lot of people and a lot of places, and you know the density is very very high. I suspect that the same techniques could apply to any major city, you know, be it New York, um, even L.A. Although L.A. is spread out a little bit more, uh, but cities like Seattle and Denver as well. Mm-hmm. The problem is that. Uh, the United States is so freaking big that there's just, you know, you can't build camera surveillance that would actually yeah. cover cover the majority of the country. Yeah, you have to do um, like just uh, the big cities. But, you know, there'd be plenty, plenty of resistance to that. We do have absolutely, lots yeah, of right. camera surveillance. And we've talked before about how ring doorbells uh, <laughs> <laughs> were, were, it's you know, people, uh, I guess the people have been against the government installing camera surveillance. So we just... We're Americans. We're going to do it ourselves. We'll do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You promise not to peek, right? Uh, I was I was actually trying to, it was a little off topic for the tech, but I was trying to explain to somebody, you know, why um, there seems to be more resistance in the United States for stay-at-home orders. Uh, you yes. know, what's the difference? What's the cultural difference here in the United States? And I was like, I mean, this is the U.S., right? I mean, it was founded on like the frontier, people heading out west, like on the Oregon Trail. When people headed out west on the Oregon Trail, they were basically told, you know, chances are you're going to die on the way. And people said, okay, sure, sign me up. See, How much do I have ya. to pay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you know, so that's it's kind of our uh, a, a little bit more of a risk-taking mentality here. There's a risk-taking mentality. There's also a uh, 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 don't tread on me kind of mentality, I think, that uh, yeah. uh, permeates a lot, of, a lot of pockets of culture out here. Um, but yeah, I think, um, and again, to go even further off field, uh, there's a, uh, an article by Mark Manson, uh, who published it, I think, just yesterday. Uh, he has a, a weekly newsletter called Mother Effing Mondays, and he's the one um, who um, who wrote a book called Everything is Effed, where, um, where I say effed, he didn't. Um, and uh, his, his comment was that... Uh, we really don't know what's going on. We just don't. And we're making a lot of decisions that assume that we do. And one of those um, observations that he made is that, you know, America is a big country. Uh, the conditions are different in different places. So one set of rules for the entire thing uh, may, may make sense may not make sense. And we're not in a really necessarily a position to judge. And of course, there's so much judging going on. (laughs) So um, it was just an interesting observation that just sort of highlights the same thing that there's so many different America, United States is is not a thing. Um, It's a lot of little things. And a lot of those little things are very, very different. Some of the resistance to uh, to the stay-at-home orders uh, come from certain areas, certain pockets uh, within the country. And other areas are saying, no, 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 we're staying home. I'm not going anywhere. We're fine. You know, just just keep it up. So uh, it is an interesting conundrum. Yep. 
Cool. Well, you know, I do, I will say it depends on who it comes from, but if they do end up um, implementing and distributing a contact tracing app uh, here in the United States, I'll probably, probably install it and turn it on. Sure. Now the other question is, is what happens when it works? So like, let's say stay at home ends, right? It's two months from now and we've all got this app installed and you can't wait. You've got your first date with a girl you met or you, uh, important business meeting at work, uh, you know, something else like that, or you're just looking forward to doing something. And an hour before you're about to leave, you get a little thing in your phone saying, Oh, four days ago, you had lunch with somebody that now has COVID-19 symptoms. So now what do you do? Right. Just go and say, Hey, uh, I got a call into work. I'm going to self quarantine for 14 days. Or do you say, ah, I really don't want to cancel all this stuff. Maybe I'll just keep that information to myself and continue to go out. Uh, I feel fine. (laughs) I I suspect that's probably also part of the NHS's objection to what's going on. um, Is that um, the the model that you described for Apple and Google really does rely on individual responsibility for self-reporting. When something go, you know, when when something shows up positive, um, whereas um, you know, I'm sure that some governments would love to be able to say, "Oh, you tested positive, you're staying home." Mm-hmm. So, and what happens? So, it, w- I could see somebody because you know you have big enough numbers, millions of people involved, so you have all sorts right. of different scenarios that happen that are outliers. So you're going to have somebody that basically is told you have to stay home for two weeks. And, oh, okay. And they're fine. Two weeks, nothing happens. Then they start going out and two days later, oh, no, you came in contact with somebody else. You're home again for two weeks. Yep. And it just keeps happening to them over and over again. It's like I've been in self-quarantine for three months now over and over again. <laughs> getting and, you know, and you're, then you're hanging out with the wrong people. <laughs> I guess. And it's, you know, it's just every time I, it ends, I go out and I end up, you know, in touch with somebody. Cause it the is. other scenario that I wonder about is um, like you said, you finally, finally mm. go out to dinner. Right. Yeah. And while you're sitting at the dinner table, your phone <laughs> goes off and says, Oh, somebody just walked into the restaurant. You know, you're, you're within six feet of oh, somebody. Yeah. That, it could be a reporting in real time, right? It, it, it has the data that says, you know, you are now within the proximity of someone who tested positive for COVID-19. <laughs> they shouldn't be out. They shouldn't be out, but they're within your orbit. Everybody, so like you're on a you're on a bus, and suddenly everybody's phone buzzes. Everybody except <laughs> one person's phone buzzes, right? And everybody looks down at their phones, except the one guy who's not looking at his phones, and everybody's pissed at that guy. It's like it's you, isn't it? It's the COVID version you're, of music. You're the chairs. only one that didn't get an alert, you know. But uh, yeah, there also I think there is a mention in the article of uh, even the potential for abuse because I mean, think you could do that too. You could you could quarantine somebody for two weeks just by getting close to them and then pressing the button. <laughs> <laughs> oh, false, falsely reporting yourself. Yourself. As being positive. Yeah. Just because, you know, close to somebody that is. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I know. Wow. I, I didn't even go there. Well, yeah. The, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, the contact tracing thing, everybody keeps saying it's really important. And, you know, I mean, the, the technology is better because contract tracing without the technology is basically a, uh, you have, you have this now 
I need to talk to you for seriously. And we need to go through day by day what you did over right. the last two weeks. Right. And, and I actually know somebody that went through this it, with uh, COVID-19 in, in uh, mid-March. Mm-hmm. And it was just a you know, long phone call while you're sick. I mean, in this case, the person did have symptoms. So a long phone call while they were sick of just going through and trying to remember all this stuff. And then this person writing all the stuff down, trying to get contact information, you know, back and forth. And then somebody, it was a health government health official from the state that going through and contacting each one of those people and telling all of them that they have to self-quarantine for 14 days. Um, I mean, it was a, it was very, it was probably an entire day of work for somebody. Right. Right. And uh, so it's impossible to do on in scale. That's why the it doesn't scale. And the other thing that I just realized though, of course, is that honestly, contact tracing is not the answer. Contact tracing is a stopgap. The answer is testing. If we were able to test, not even necessarily even everybody, but enough people uh, that, um, uh, you know, so that you could know easily and quickly whether or not you're carrying the disease or not, uh, that then contact tracing itself kind of sort of becomes moot. I wonder though, how soon, so I assume you have to do the viral test, test for the virus itself, not the antibodies when, when you, you're that early, like you may have it, you may not know it yet, but I wonder how early that's accurate. Like if, I came into, you know, it's like it's the first day and I get a test and I, oh, I'm clear. Well, maybe it takes two or three days. You know, we will have to have studies on that, which contact tracing will allow, you know. Absolutely. And and then it may not be much help. It may be that you could still be like 10 days afterwards is when you first show a, a positive test, which means that the testing doesn't help preventing people from staying home. It does help. I don't know. I guess it does help with forward contact tracing, like down the line. Um, but I don't know. A lot of, yeah, a lot of yeah. stuff. I guess, you know, when it gets like this, the one thing I'm thankful for is you and I aren't the people that need to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. There are a lot of smart well, people working well, on that. Let somebody else figure it out. We'll just, and then we'll talk about it. And, and we'll talk about it. We'll probably complain about it. And, complain, um, yeah. and, and we will, uh, uh, do the contact tracing thing. We will do the testing thing. And when the time comes, we will get the vaccination. Yeah, well, yeah, that's uh, a long ways off. Unfortunately, it is. It's funny because there was definitely some wording. Um, and again, I suspect it was more, um, I don't want to say clickbaity headlines, but at least attention-grabbing headlines that seemed to imply that things were moving faster than the usual year, year and a half it would take to generate the vaccine. But now we are back to, you know, yeah, next year at the earliest, definitely. I know. And so. it's, uh, yeah, it's, I'm anxious to get uh, an antibody test. There actually is the hospital a few blocks from my house. Mm-hmm. Offered them for ninety four dollars to anybody that wants to sign up, mm-hmm. uh, but they sell out quick. Sure. So my thinking is, I'm not going to worry about it now because I want to leave the slots for people that really need it for some reason. Sure. Um, but at some point, maybe two weeks from now or so, I'm going to start checking and maybe get a slot. I've I've decided that as far as the antibody stuff goes, um, unless I suddenly you know get sick and recover, um, I'll probably want the antibodies just to 
to determine was that COVID-19 or exactly. did, I, oh, yeah. did I just have the flu? But um, even without symptoms, uh, I would like to take that test only after uh, things like plasma therapy are proven so that as someone with the antibodies, I'd go mm. out and start donating plasma to, to help the folks recover, right? Um, I would um, um, also want to understand before I invest, you know, before I did the, the antibody test, um, how, do we act, is there immunity? They don't even know that really, right? Is there in fact immunity? How long does immunity last if it exists? There are now some anecdotal reports of people having gotten the disease, the disease twice. Um, I think, and again, to go back to what Mark Manson was saying, there's just so much we don't know. Um, that having the antibodies may or may not actually tell you something. Well, yeah, but I see, I see that as being kind of uh, clickbaity stuff, like because we don't, things aren't proven, of course not. You know, the scientific way is, you know, you have to have studies and tests and reports and peer oh, yeah. review and all of that. All that stuff. But there's a lot of information that we do have. Uh, it would be highly unusual if it turns out that having antibodies didn't make you immune because other right but the question viruses and other things sure. like coronavirus sure but the the other question that is that's still associated with that is how long do the antibodies hang around well there's that um and most of the you know the the, the reports that there have been of people getting uh, testing a, a positive after they've tested negative, sure. right? Have been, you know, uh, the source of the clickbait headline saying, oh, perhaps you can get it again. Um, I've ha heard uh, doctors talk about the fact that, number one, it's way too early for anybody to get it again because, <laughs> right. you know, it's only been around since maybe, you know, most places in the world, January, February. So, um, the idea would be you, you should have a full recovery from it several months and then get it. That would right. be getting it again. Otherwise, it's dormant in your system kind of situation or a false test, whether that was the middle test, the one that said no, that was false, or the third test, the one that said yes after saying no. You know, The numbers are kind of consistent with what you would expect from mm -hmm. bad tests when you're talking about something like 100 or right. 200 people right, in right. South Korea and China, looking at the tens of thousands of people that were diagnosed, you would expect if you looked at all the test results that you would have a small number like that where the testing had a little flaw to it or that there was simply a, uh, you know, it was such a low amount of the virus in them at the point of one of those tests that it said they didn't have it and then the next test said they did. Right. Things like that. So I, we don't know whether or not you can get it again after getting it. But yeah. it's pr almost certainly the case that you, you have antibodies and you are, you know, right. immune is a and strong term, is an absolute term, but right. it, that maybe you could get it again. Resistant. But yeah, a lot of, uh, one of the consistent things they found out from the South Korea, small number again, I think it was like 119 the last time I looked, of people that tested positive after testing negative, mm -hmm. was that 100% of those did not pass it on to people because they had been in quarantine, gone out of quarantine, and been in contact with people that had never had it. Fascinating. None of them passed it along, which right. means either it was a testing error or the fact that even though they tested positive, this resurgence of the virus in them was pretty ineffective.
Well, it was something else. It was something else that is, that shows as um, yeah um, as a positive result, but isn't really the virus. Is it really the virus, or is yeah. maybe maybe you know their body can completely fight it off? So the virus is there trying to stick around, but their immune system is is not having it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is perfectly capable of dealing with this the virus being there and getting rid of it so i don't i don't believe i i do believe in you know that the antibodies and that, that's why doctors i think a lot of them are paying so much attention to them and there's a lot of money being spent on testing it's because it, it's extremely likely that having the antibodies is key um it could also create an interesting uh like a multi-class society, right? You become people that have the antibodies, people that don't have the antibodies. That was one of the things that I've heard discussed also is that, yes, you know, you, so so what does it mean? Do you release the people who have the antibodies? Are yeah, they allowed to go out that. and everybody else stays home? That's odd. Uh, that and actually works as an incentive for those people to actively seek out getting sick so that they can get the antibodies. Exactly. It's it's a it's a scary scenario. And going out, that's nothing compared to travel, right? If right. it gets to the point where it's like, oh yeah, you could travel, get an international flight as long as you have a certification, a card of some sort, or right. a passport, immunity passport, that uh, shows that you have the antibodies. So now it's like, you know, if you're a young person and you want to travel, that's what you love doing. You want to go to Paris, you know, just you would have incentive to just infect yourself with it. Go get sick first and hope get, you don't die. Yeah, hope you don't die. And then you can now travel around the world freely. That could be a kind of a dangerous situation for us to find ourselves in. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. Enough about coronavirus. Yeah. Let's talk about it's... what else we got. <laughs> so <clears throat> last night I did not sleep well. And one of the reasons was I had a dream. And it's one of those um, techno geek nightmares almost. I was in my dream. Mm -hmm. I was traveling. This is unrelated to coronavirus, honest. I was traveling and I was in a hotel and I found that I had lost my wallet, my smartphone, and my room key. In other words, I basically had nothing. Wow. And I was trying to convince the receptionist that I was who I was and should be allowed back into my room. Uh, and of course that was failing. And I was attempting to do so for whatever reason by regaining access to my online accounts. Now, my online accounts, as I'm sure yours are, are very secure. Mm -hmm. uh, I have two-factor authentication on everything that supports two-factor authentication. Um, I have you know long, strong passwords. I've you know all the all the good stuff, all the stuff you're supposed to do. And after waking up from that dream, I realized, oh, crap, <laughs> this is real. This would happen to me right now if I lost all of those things, um, you know, my wallet, my smartphone. Uh, and I didn't have access to anything else other than what was in my brain. Yeah. Uh, I probably, I would have a very, very difficult time, if even possible, to get into any of my accounts. So what I have been doing this morning uh, before lunch is I've been very carefully reviewing <laughs> 
all the security settings on all of my um, my uh, primary accounts, which um, again, you and I, we're abnormal um, in that uh, we have lots of accounts at lots of important places. You know, I've got a couple of Gmail accounts. I've got an Apple account. Um, I've got my LastPass account. I've got Dropbox. I've got all those different things um, that all work to make my world very complicated, um, especially if I don't happen to have my second factors with me. And it's uh, it's been a very interesting exercise. And the thing that I realized, and one of the reasons that I started going down this path, maybe this is slightly COVID-19 related, is, huh. is what would happen to me in that lost everything scenario is what my wife would find herself in if something happened to me, right? Mm-hmm. She wouldn't have access to my phone because I was somewhere else. She wouldn't have, you know, she wouldn't have the information that she would need to get into my accounts. And I've set a lot of this stuff up. I really have so that I've got a couple of, of safety nets where uh, people can get access to certain things. But the bottom line was I realized in that dream that it wasn't enough. There's just, there's just one, there, there's a piece or two that's missing. And the challenge I have is to come up with a piece that is uh, significantly secure so that it's something that I can simply remember and, um, uh, but yet secure enough that, yeah, it's kind of a, a foot in the door kind of scenario because by accessing that, then I would be able to access some more uh, you know, some of the more recovery codes or alternate mechanisms or whatever. Um, I'm just kind of curious if you've spent any time on, um, on this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you found yourself uh, stranded on a desert island uh, with a good hotel, with good Wi-Fi, but without your computer and without any of your second factors or your iPhone, uh, would you be able to get online? Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, it's strange as you started telling the story because I had a very similar dream about a week ago, uh, which shows that everybody might be running the same uh, firmware yes. in their brains. <laughs> in our you simulation, know, yes, our common simulation here. Yeah, they, you know, because, I mean, everybody in the world's in a similar situation right now. So, you know, and there's been some articles about our anxiety dreams and stuff. Yep. This definitely is an anxiety dream, and I have those quite often. And, yeah, mine was that I was simply... I was I left my phone and my wallet on the desk at the um, Apple Genius Bar at an Apple store, <laughs> of course, because <laughs> they were helping me with my laptop or something like that. You know, I was like trying to get on, you know, replace the screen or whatever. So I put the and then somebody called me away from the desk and I ended up getting further and further away. And the next thing I know was in somebody's car and uh doing something important and uh, somehow I ended up in another city and dropped off and I didn't have my phone, didn't have my wallet. And yeah. So how do I get home? How do what, you know, what do I, how do I deal with it? Of course, two factor authentication, uh, a lot of times they're backup codes, right? Right. But you have to have the codes somehow. Right. So the idea is that uh, I do have the codes, not in a place necessarily that anybody knows where they are, but a place where I could easily tell my wife where they are. (laughs) So I could, for instance, if I could make a phone call, a regular landline phone call, um, 
you know, get uh, talk to my wife, have her look in a certain place and read me off a code. And then I could get in and I have the codes for uh, a couple of the systems I would need to get into. Um, then from there, I guess I could, I could log in to my computer remotely. And from there, I would have access to my 1Password database, which is stored locally on the computer and encrypted. But that is one of the few passwords I have memorized. Right. Um, even though it's not, it is randomly generated. <laughs> it's, oh, is it? uh, yeah. And wow. so, um, it's just, uh, it's just one of those things I, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, I just, I have that one memorized because that one's kind of important. It's um, interesting because you really do have a chicken and egg situation with the master password to your to your password vault is right. Yes. You, the, the tool you want to use to remember passwords is the tool you, by definition, cannot use to remember that password. Right. And what helps is on a Mac, and it would be on the same Windows, the 1Password thing, the whole idea, the name there, is that is the 1Password you need to enter in. So I do oh, yeah. enter that in quite often, which yes. helps memorize it, right? That's how I have it memorized. Okay. On the phone, though, <laughs> I use Face ID right. to do it. So if it was just simply a phone thing, I would never have the chance to really memorize that, that uh, thing there. Now, so I could I could get into that. So with a little help from somebody, I could. I also often think about like if I was local and I didn't have to travel back, I have actually a combo lock on my door, um, not a key. So I actually can be, I could lose everything out of my pockets as long as I am in walking distance to home. And for right. me, walking distance is quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the metro area, um, I could actually, if I can arrive at my door, I can let myself in and then, you know, begin to rebuild my access to things right. from that point. So I have, I have given quite a bit of thought to all of that. I remember before when I did have regular keys of having to figure out like, you know, how do I get into the house if I don't have access to a key? So on the completely semi-related, <laughs> um, on the day we took possession of this house, the house we're in right now, mm -hmm. uh, we locked ourselves out. And <laughs> probably the most common day for anybody to lock themselves out. Is I that, suppose. Yeah. Um, and we discovered that, um, okay, this window over here, if you do just the right thing to it and it happened to be open, you could push it open further and then someone could climb through. Uh, but that's, that's literally what happened on our first day. We do not have combo locks on our doors. We've got traditional keys still. And I suspect that that's going to stay that way. The only thing that I do have is I do have a combo lock on a garage door and then a key hidden in the garage for the rest of the house. That's exactly how I had done it. Um, I, you know, I was able to get in because I had a, um, the garage door opener. I had a combo keypad that you could use mm -hmm. because as, a, as somebody who bikes, um, I needed that to be able to get into the garage at the end of a bike ride, right? So I knew the combo to that key keypad. And then I had a lockbox in the garage, right? which I had used uh, previously for something else. So it was not, purchase for this but that had a combo on it and that was sitting in the right. garage and inside that lockbox was a key right and that would let me into the house and that's how i did it before my current house which just simply has combo locks on the on the uh, i think i think door. i just solved my own problem i do i do have equivalents to um something that i can get into easily uh with just remembering something and then um in there having an additional quote unquote lockbox that uh, I would use to uh, to store the key, a key to my kingdom of some sort. Um, but 
But yeah, it's just interesting. And these are things, it, it's funny because I've actually got articles on this. There's one on, on Ask Leo. I think it's called What Happens When I Die. And it actually discusses this um, in the more general terms for the average consumer where, I, you know, you've probably heard this too as people bring questions to you. Um, they ask, you know, can you hack into this account? It mm-hmm. was my dad's. He passed away. Everything is in there. Uh, I mean, I've heard some really, really sad, heartbreaking stories. Uh, and unfortunately, um, very rarely am I, am I able to help, uh, you know, if, they, if the person who owned the account didn't set up appropriate security and appropriate alternate security for the account, um, there's often very little chance that um, anybody can get back in. I mean, they did security right, you know, nobody can break in, but they did right. security so right that nobody can break in. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things that I encourage my readers at least to think about from time to time. But it's just ironic. Like I said, our worlds are um, incredibly complex uh, for a variety of reasons because it's what we do. But um, nonetheless, the, the theme here is that, uh, yeah, sometimes those, those nightmares are real. and You really do want to double and triple check the scenarios that lead you to uh, set up all that recovery stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. So uh, switching gears. Um, so I think we talked, oh God, it got to be a couple of weeks ago now uh, that my wife's computer was kind of sort of, I don't know, getting questionable. Um, it's a, it was a MacBook air. I did say was. Uh, it's it's now sitting in my office uh, where it's, <laughs> I'll call it a cooling off phase. The um, uh, And at the same time, her phone, uh, which is, I think, my previous main phone, so it was absolutely a hand-me-down, um, was also starting to act up. So earlier this week, I think it was last week, my wife said something to the effect of, um, you know, I understand that both of these things are, uh, you know, kind of sort of getting a little flaky and they'll probably need to get replaced at some point. Uh, it would not be a good thing if they happened at the same time, which basically motivated me uh, to get off my butt and ordered, I started with uh, replacing her laptop. Uh, the MacBook Air has been working. It's fine. Um, I'll probably end up uh, re um rebuilding it, but, uh, you know, just reinstalling the OS from scratch and, and having a, a nice clean machine to work from. But I ended up buying her, of all things, a Chromebook. And I remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I purchased for her a Pixelbook Go. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, of course. Uh, and it really brought home to me something that I've been telling my readers for a very long time whenever they're considering purchasing a new computer. And that is the better you understand what it is you're going to do with a computer, how you're going to use it, the more intelligent, the more informed uh, decision you can make and the more money you can end up saving. Uh, I actually ended up getting her the uh, low-end Pixelbook Go it has uh, eight gigabytes of RAM, a 64 gigabyte SSD, and an Intel M3 processor. And it, um, it, I mean, we're 48 hours in. It arrived on Sunday. Uh, and it's doing fine. It's a little bit lighter than the MacBook Air she had. Uh, it's roughly the same screen size. 
the battery life will probably be longer. Uh, if, if for no other reason than it's a brand new battery as opposed to the air, which is already, you know, five, six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when I thought about how she uses this machine and, and what's happening on it, honestly, 99.9% of her time is spent in a browser. Um, and uh, even then, the only reason that a tablet wouldn't be enough is that she needs a real keyboard and a mouse. So when you throw those three things together, browser, keyboard, and mouse, what you're looking at is essentially uh, an inexpensive Chromebook. And I think I spent like maybe $600 for this. You can get higher end Chromebooks. And if this were something that I was considering for myself or something that I would expect I would end up taking someday, um, I would have gone that way. But as it was, just thinking about what she's doing and how she's using the machine, um, it turns out this is plenty. And so far, we're very, very happy with it. Uh, the, <laughs> there's only one frustration so far, mm-hmm. literally only one. And it's that uh, the screen timeout, you know, the, the thing that if you don't use the computer, it automatically turns the screen off. Or if you want, it goes into sleep um, after a certain amount of time. That amount of time is not configurable in Google Chrome. Hmm which surprised the heck out of me. Huh. Uh, you, can, you can set it to be on all the time, which of course nukes your battery life if you're uh, running it off of, you know, without the uh, charger plugged in. Um, but I just surprised the heck out of me. And uh, I may end up investigating to see if there's some more, more flexible extensions that might uh, give me a little bit more control, but it was surprising to find that. But so far, like I said, if that's the worst thing we found in the first 48 hours, um, I'm actually pretty pleased. I got to say it was one of the fastest machine setups I've ever had. It's like log in with her Google account, um, fire up the browser, uh, let it sync because she's using browser sync. And um, all of a sudden, basically, everything was just kind of sort of there. Uh, joining the network was the only password I really had to remember. Um, installing her last pass got her everything else. Uh, I think the the only other awkward thing uh, that happened was last night when she went to Amazon. Um, we have two-factor turned on for Amazon. So when hmm. she logged into it for the first time, she had to look at me and say, hey, it's asking for a code. So I grabbed my phone and you know typed in a code for her. That was it. So the, the news there is really good. Um, the, the Chromebook is a very, very viable and solid solution for her. And I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully having that be, uh, be a long-term solution. Cool. Well, I wanted to uh, go back to something we were talking about last week. Um, and uh, remember the story, I'll, I'll briefly summarize it here. It's basically uh, the groups that were putting together protests to open back up America um, had a lot of links to each other. You know, people were basically buying uh, domains and setting up web servers that weren't in the state that they were supposed to be in. Uh, and uh, so you had, you know, one, one or several organizations setting up all these grassroots uh, movements um, that weren't really grassroots. I was going to say, where uh, grassroots is in quotes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, we talked about astroturfing. Now, you actually suggested something saying, well, what else could it possibly be? Like, and you had the idea that, well, maybe somebody, people are using the same service to set things up. And that service then, you know, is agnostic to the type of website it is, but it makes right. it look like the websites are all set up. Now, uh, that's, that, 
that's actually interesting that you were looking for a different solution because there did turn out to be possibly for some of this a very different uh, cause for this. And it's not what you came up with, but at least you're on the right track trying to think outside the box. <laughs> so it turns out that the first group of these um, probably were set up by organizations and people not in the states they were in. But then at some point, a, uh, a guy, uh, and what was his name? His name uh, was Matt, Michael Murphy um, in Florida, who is not in alignment with this, uh, this cause. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, he saw this happening. He decided late at night that he could prevent this by simply scooping up a bunch of these domain names. So if the idea was reopen and then the two state initials, like reopen NC, reopen PA or whatever, then he would just go and buy a whole bunch of them. So he did that. So he bought a whole bunch of them to keep them out of the hands of whoever wanted to actually use them for organizing these things. And that probably seemed like a good idea to him at the time uh, until a few days later when he started uh, getting attacked himself because, of course, to other people, it looked like he was one of these organizers, right? right. He was buying up all these. Obviously, he was up to no good and going to set these up as uh, sites to, to organize uh, protests. And in fact, he was getting them to do nothing with them at all except uh, keep them out of other people's hands. So yeah, he ended up having pretty, a pretty bad week. Um, dealing with the fallout for and that. And as I understand it, he had to spend some money to, to have that bad week to begin with. I mean, he was talking about spending yeah. several hundred dollars to register these domains. Sure. Sure. So, so, so yes, but it is, we, you know, neither of us thought of that, that somebody could actually be right. doing that thing. Um, yeah. So I think you and I have been down this path on the business side as well. I mean, um, there's, there's, in the end, it becomes a game of whack-a-mole. Um, he saw a pattern, you know, um, um, open, what was it? Open WA? Open and, yeah, two. Yeah, two. Okay. Open so there, there's a pattern there. And sure, you can fill in the pattern and, and, and plug that hole. But you know that as soon as you do that, they're going to come up with, um, uh, you know, a different pattern or a different sure. set of domains. So you could actually spend your um, a lot more than 400 bucks doing that. Um, we've had that uh, in the sense that, uh, by we often, for a while, we were buying uh, the typos of our domains, right? Mm. Um, so, like, <clears throat> I, I, I think I still own AskLeo.co, uh, just because. Um, but it's that kind of a thing where you can spend an awful lot of money thinking of a lot of different domain names that could be used for a purpose or could accidentally be used for a purpose um, and and still not plug all the holes in the dike. I mean, it was it's it's a, it's a scary path to run down. I feel bad for the guy. His intentions were, you know, were were uh, were good. Yeah. Um, it's just that um folks that attacked him didn't do the research that they should. And, you know, when you think about it, most mobs don't do a lot of research. <laughs> yeah. Not, not a, not a group known for you know, the heavy research. Um, and what would have been interesting if, if I had been in his shoes, 
Um, the whole idea behind what he was protecting from is that these domains would otherwise be used to promote releasing people too soon from the COVID-19 quarantine. So buy the domains and have them all redirect to a page that says, stay at home, <laughs> right? Yeah. Have it actually promote the opposite message so that um, I think had he done something like that, there's a chance that it might've been a little clearer to the mob that he actually was one of them. Yeah, that probably would have been the smart thing to do. And it sounds like he did purchase all this stuff late at night and then he was done with it, you know, Whereas maybe if, you know, he had been doing this in the afternoon, he might have thought, okay, now that I'm done with that, the next step right. is this, and probably even making his intentions really clear. Because if he just simply redirects them all to, say, you know, a CDC website about, you know, how to protect yourself and others, um, people may have seen that as, oh, he's trying to trick people, you know, as these right, are good right, domains, right. and then he's going to change it. But if he had redirected it to something, introducing himself, maybe not sure. by but just saying, this is why I purchased this domain in order, you know, for this purpose. And right. uh, here are some links to good information from reputable organizations, that kind of yep. thing. Yep. So anyway, yeah. so what's the latest on? Have you heard anything beyond the initial report? No, I did. I did try to look because, uh, you know, uh, you had you had found this and then emailed it to me. And then I tried to look this afternoon for mm -hmm. um, any updates. It, it had, I hadn't really found anything beyond I think one other article that just had the same information and said right. nothing changed. Right. So, yeah, that's one of the things that does frustrate me about our current news cycle is that um, once a story makes the headlines, it's gone. Right. Yep. Up, updates. Updates yeah. are just well. Even if there are updates, because often there are, but even if there are updates, they don't get the same kind of promotion that the initial story does. And it can, as you see, can be very difficult sometimes to get updates or to find the updates on the stories that you uh, you might care about. Especially if it becomes less sensational of a story yes. over time, because, you know, that, that clickbait that was there for the initial story, you know, spending the time doing the follow-up to basically say, oh, nothing going on here. Nothing to you see know, here. Mi missing, yeah. missing child found, at, you know, safely <laughs> at relative's house is not like a, you know, as an attention-grabbing yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, uh, let's see. So this week, uh, the article that I would like to point people at is one that I wrote honestly many years ago for a completely different scenario, but it applies more and more today uh, than I think a lot of people uh, realize. The article is, can video chat be intercepted and recorded? So years ago, I was getting, I was getting this question, honestly, frequently. It was, it was really surprising how often um, I would get asked variations of this question. And it took me a little while to, uh, to you know, dig down a little bit and understand what was going on. And it's still kind of, sort of, my theory, but I think it's borne out by some of the reaction, that what was happening is that um, an individual would be, I'll just say, convinced to have an intimate video chat with someone else uh, you know, presumably they trusted each other, whatever, whatever the scenario was. 
and unbeknownst to the individual involved, uh, the video chat would be recorded or, or it was at least claimed that the video chat had been recorded and uh, what he or she, but generally he, uh, was doing on camera was threatened with release. Now, if this sounds familiar, in a sense, this is one of the very early versions of the current sextortion scams. Uh, you've probably all gotten the email spams these days that say, hey, here's a password you used to use, and by the way, I hacked your system and recorded you on the webcam, um, doing something you weren't supposed to be doing on camera. And this is that same scenario. The bottom line was there, there were a couple of variations of the questions. One was, could the person in the middle, could there be somebody in the middle recording this? To which the answer is generally no. Uh, you know, certainly the, the Skypes at the time uh, weren't interested in what you were doing on camera and they weren't necessarily going to be recording it, even if they could. Uh, but the, um, uh, you know, could somebody in the middle be recording it? And the answer is generally no. But what most people didn't realize is how trivially easy it is for the person at the other end to record what's on the screen. And uh, there's multiple pieces of software that will do that for you now. Uh, you know, software that is has other purposes like Camtasia and, and Open Broadcast, both of them will record windows, will record your screen, and that will easily record that kind of you know, a video chat going on. I bring that up now in the age of, of the coronavirus because we've all moved or there's so much more video conferencing going on, video messaging going on. Uh, people are having one-on-one -on -one conversations via video. People are having group meetings via video. Realize that anybody who has access to that video could be recording it. May not be an issue. Probably 99 times out of a thousand, out of 100, it's not. But um, before you, uh, you know, open up the corporate books, maybe in your business meeting, uh, you may want to make sure that you really do know that everybody online is trustworthy and not going to be recording about what you're about to show them. Um, and certainly for those one-on-one -on -one intimate sessions, uh, same is true. Make sure that uh, you really, really trust the person at the other end because absolutely they have the ability to record it. Anyway, that's Can Video Chat Be Intercepted and Recorded? It's askleo.com slash 10960. Cool. Now, I, I've got uh, my best video of the week probably uh, in terms of traffic has been one on tips for using Mac Spotlight. So some cool things you can do with the Spotlight function on your Mac. So, we'll so for us Windows users, tell us what Spotlight is. Uh, you you hit um, Command Space or you um, uh, click on an icon in the menu bar and you basically get a prompt. And you can do all sorts of different things with the prompt. Some people will just use it to search for files, but you can use it to search the web. You can use it to look up dictionary definitions. You can use it to launch apps. You can use it to uh, get the weather, get movie times, uh, sports uh, results, all cool. sorts of things. It's basically just a kind of a smart command line that's built into Mac OS. Just, uh, you, you know, type things and uh, do all sorts of stuff. It sounds a lot like what um, Microsoft has been doing with the search in Windows 10 uh, for 
Cortana is what it's been called. They actually yeah. hook their, their smart assistant to it, but I think they're 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 toning that down a little bit and just referring to it as search, but it sounds like a lot of the same things you can yeah. do. Yeah, it's kind okay. of, it does overlap a lot with Siri. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with, I guess, Spotlight has its roots in file search. Right. And Siri has its roots in kind of productivity apps, you know, adding reminders and calendar events and things mm-hmm. like that. But then they overlap. The Venn diagram overlaps a lot. Right, right. The two of them. Yeah. So, anyway. Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week. Yeah. All right. The show notes for this week are tehpodcast.com slash teh96. If you've got a comment or a question, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at the TEH podcast or leave a comment on the show notes page. We honestly, we read those. We appreciate them. Thanks for listening. And we will see you here again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.